Hello, beautiful. You are listening to Africana Woman with Chulu Podcast. Today is a special episode where we reflect on how far the podcast has come. My name is Chulu, your host. I am a writer, personal brand consultant, entrepreneur, and mentor. On 1st September 2020, I sat in front of my computer debating whether I should release this podcast. Would anyone listen? Would anyone find value from these conversations? What if people don't like it? Those were the questions swirling in my head as I looked at the publish button. I took a deep breath and said, you will never know unless you try. So I clicked publish. The podcast was now out in the world. There was no turning back. Two years later, the podcast has evolved into such a beautiful space where women are empowered. I have had beautiful conversations with over 70 women from more than 20 countries. Certainly, you cannot be the same person after being exposed to what it means to be an African woman. Today, I want to share 33 of these stories that embody who Africana woman is. The first set of stories are told by Kako, Lelo, Lubunga, Penelope, Asedi, Keji, Natasha, Tuba, and Mente. Listen, as women, we go through a lot. We experience trauma, we are taught to be ashamed of ourselves, and we are conditioned to accept it all. The women paint a picture of the variety of situations that could happen to any woman that is listening, which she is then expected to pretend does not affect her. For me, I was just like really experimenting. I was just like, what will it be like to be a mother or to have a child? And I think in the beginning, I didn't even realize what I was getting myself into until, you know, I realized that I was actually expecting my first child. My relationship with my mom as I was growing up we were very, we were close, but she was a very firm mother. Let me put it that way. Yeah, we, there were some conversations that I think I have with my daughter that I wasn't able to have with my, with my mom mm. because I think at time those were things that I think our parents were just not very comfortable about talking mm-hmm. to us about. The problem about fornication as a sin is that the results of it can be physical, right? So people can lie, people can steal, people can murder, people can do all sorts of sins, right? And they wouldn't be proof. Or, you know, people can do a good job at hiding the proof of their sin. But when you fall pregnant and you fall pregnant out of wedlock, it becomes a public thing. It becomes something visible for everybody to see. Everybody knows what you did. I felt out of place, you know? I felt I felt ashamed, I felt a bit guilty and and especially when people don't come to you straight you know especially when people are very silent about it and it, it almost feels a bit like why are they not saying the things that sometimes I think that they're thinking you know and and I felt you know I think a particularly hard day that I can remember was Mother's Day I think my very first Mother's Day was very tough for me 
So in my head, I'm like, if this is all there is to motherhood, one, I don't want another baby. And number two, I questioned, I questioned myself a lot. I questioned myself if I was capable of nurturing this being and just taking care of them. And I'm not going to lie. This is something I've spoken about. I'm not proud of it, but I want to put it out there that motherhood is not a joyful ride every single day. There are days when you hate being a mother. That doesn't make you a bad mother. I just want to put it out there. But it's life happening to you. There are days when I would let him be in his diaper longer than usual because I just didn't have the strength in me. I journaled. I journaled a lot because that helped me. Uh, I needed to channel what I was feeling. And then when I came to the UK, actually, they weren't working well. Like their relationship wasn't working as well. So we, me and her had to share a room. She had to leave. The assumption that I had back home is that they are doing well because she sent me money, she sent me things. And I'm thinking, okay, she's, she's living. Yeah. And I'm stuck here, yeah, so it's fine. So when I get there, it's going to be amazing and rosy. But no, I walked into like a struggle, basically. And it was a shock to my system because I'm sharing a room with my mom in the UK. And I'm 15. In my head, that's not what I came here for. <laughs> like, what is going on? <laughs> Even, you know, and I quickly realized that actually here people work crazy hours. Like, you know, the lifestyle is very different to what we imagine it to be. And you don't take lightly uh, when the word of God says that when two people are, you know, come together, it's like two souls coming together. And now suddenly you have to separate those souls. So whichever way it is, whether it's a year or 10 years or whatever, it's extremely painful. It's almost as, as if it's a death, you know. They say that death is even easier to deal with because it's final. But with divorce, this person is somewhere around, you know, and you, 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 you perceive them as, oh, they must be happy without me. They must be having a good. So that in itself is, is very difficult. So I think the first thing to remember is that it will not be easy. Second thing to remember is that you have to allow yourself to breathe. Whatever emotions you're feeling, you cannot block them. You have to go through the emotions. I think it was my, probably my first experience of trauma. Okay. So I was about five. And I remember my dad came. And I didn't fully remember. Obviously, I knew it was my dad, but because I built such a bond with my with Nanny Wendy. And I remember she said, Kitty, I remember she said to me, Kitty, do you remember? Your dad said, oh, you're going back home. And you said, I'm not going anywhere until I've had my roast dinner. So she went and she went and had to go and buy the food and she cooked it for me, okay, prepared it for me. And she said, when I was going, when she, and it was time for me to leave. I remember it so well now. I screamed and kicked and said, I'm not going anywhere. My dad, used, like my dad has always been drinking. So, you know, there are times he'd come home, he's drunk. And my mother is just there being the sweet lady that she is, trying to be there for her man. But then he was just Eric, really. It's, it's not arguing, it's something else. I remember one memory when I was super, super young. We were living, it should have been in um, Nyumba, Nyumba Yanga. And he, he he went out and he came back this one night. And you know, he was drunk, so he was banging on the door so hard. 
and he wanted to come in and yeah he just hit the window and the glass broke and I remember a piece of glass got into my mom's eye and I always remember that memory like okay so that man what were his thoughts and you know I, I felt really 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 bad another memory was I had gone to see my grandparents and my mom like dropped me like in the afternoon and then in the evening she had come back and everyone told me to leave the room and then everyone went to the room like she was crying and I would ask like okay what's going on but then everyone thought I was too young to get an explanation but I kind of heard I think they were in an argument and when I even went home like the little garden we had there was like a mark that someone had actually fallen there and when I would ask no one would say anything tangible at the time but when I got older they did at least own up to the fact that my parents would fight and whatnot. so it was my dad was really really something when I when he pushed me down a flight of stairs then I was like oh Tuba you're going back to Zambia in a body bag this ain't it so but then I knew myself I've always been kind of fairly self-aware. So I knew that if I leave him before I'm ready, I'm just going to go back. Like I needed to hate him so that I can leave and never come back. So I waited and I gambled and I would never, ever, ever advise anybody to do that because I was literally gambling with my life. He would strangle mm-hmm. me and he would lock me out of the house sometimes in the cold and you know he would hit me throw me down the throwing me down a flight of stairs happened twice and he did that and I could have broken my neck I could have come back I could come back as a corpse you know but I was still waiting for that moment when I would snap and it did happen and I just I was waiting for that to happen and then I knew I'd leave and never look back because um our parents told us we got everything inside apparently it's going to be for a short time so we got food we got everything we can survive and then people were like running everywhere and people were knocking on the door like our neighbors were leaving now and we don't want to leave anyone behind so we all have to go and we just jumped out of the house with pajamas like nothing nothing just pajamas and our parents tried to tell us that um it's only going to be for a week we're going to be back don't worry we never came back and that was since 1990 we ended up living running away from the from Liberia it is so weird that no one ever says wait that was traumatic do you need help to process what has happened to you we kind of are all in survival mode of flight or flight and we get stuck there for a while. I think this happens because our culture tends to shy away from uncomfortable conversations. If we are all avoiding as a community, as a society, if we are all avoiding talking about big things that affect us all, how can we have the bravery to talk about the thing that affects us as an individual? The next set of stories are examples of bigger cultural problems that everyone is aware of but would rather not talk about. Our storytellers are Tumelo, 
Chola, Mweni, Mono, and Wangu. So when we are sexually repressed, we are actually disconnected from that to our very essence to create lives, to create our very lives and to transform the world. Our African cultures actually want, <laughs> they want for women to be sexually um, to be sexually liberated. Imagine like as a man having a sexually liberated woman, then both of you get to thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy each other. And sexual energy also has the power like just to propel you, to enhance your life, to help you build like magnificent life and magnificent life experiences. So we are finding mm-hmm. that when women are sexually repressed, men actually don't get to fully explore it as well. Like it's not like they're actually benefiting. When we go to the core, they're not really benefiting from women being sexually repressed. Assuming that because you're a man, you're supposed to know certain things and you're supposed to have a certain kind of order and you're supposed to have things sorted out by this age. There's just expectations that are put on men. First of all, it's okay, you can't cry. So the emotional mm-hmm. side is, you can't really show your emotions. So don't even dare break down and cry for anything. <laughs> also, like at a certain age, you should have moved out of your parents' home and you should be earning a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. And then they're getting married out of peer pressure. And they have mm. no idea what to do with them. But the girls, from the time they're little, they're, they're playing with their dolls, they're playing with little pots, they're being socialized from a very early age of, of cooking and cleaning up and looking after everyone. And the boys are just, you're just allowed to play. So, mm. <laughs> so to ask a 30-year-old guy to become serious and manage a home when you haven't been helping him. My grandparents passed away because they just passed away like four months in between. So it's almost the same period. I I got to go for therapy because <laughs> I think I'm saying this a lot, but it became bad and I went for therapy and I could see my brother. I could see he he needed the help as much as I did, but he didn't speak about it. And people couldn't see because he could hide it so well. So I always wondered like I talked to him how do you feel you wouldn't find him talking about how he felt it just became so bad where now like stopped going to school would start passing out and people just said he's he's not okay and like yes he's not okay but he's not okay mentally his mental state is not okay so it's 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 a whole lot harder on the men than it is on the women before Kaunda became president people lived in their provinces. So Northerners lived in the Northern province, Southerners in the Southern province, Westerners in the Western province, and so on. So because of that, they didn't really interact with each other. So I think out of that, they then created assumptions. Let's say one Bemba person meets a Tonga person and their experience with that person was that that person was selfish. Then they go with it and now everyone, they just go around saying, no, Tonga people are selfish. So now everyone, and it's continued now, because there are actually even some people who would tell their children, oh, so, so don't marry a person from that clan because they're like this and so on and so forth. So I think that's how all of this started. And then now we, we found that when Kaunda came into power, he, tr- he tried his best to encourage one Zambia, one nation and mixing of tribes. So then you'll find that people from Northern province were being posted to Western province. I feel like there isn't 
much solidarity among African Americans and Africans because there's also a tension between those two groups of people because I've heard arguments like oh yeah African Americans are coming at Africans like oh you sold us off you know you sold you you gave us up we were here slaving away and you sold us and so we're in this mess because of you you know it's it's that kind of a situation and then you know but then at the same time it's like okay well we're going through this together right now we're going through this whole racism thing together and I think it, it just helps if we're working together to fight it and we're not, you know, fighting each other. It's better if, yeah, we're working together against it, not working against each other and it's working against us. In as much as we can try to hide from our problems, most of us come face to face with it in what they call the dark night of the soul. Then, we have a decision to make. Do you continue to numb the pain with your drug of choice, which can be food, alcohol, movies, social media, etc., etc.? Or do we drum up the courage to face our demons, which sometimes looks like getting help? Our next set of storytellers are Evelyn, Zanele, Ruth, Paula and Yuna. Though you said that you know the Bible wants us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and we we don't do that either. In a sense, we tend to look at other women and you know look at them with compassion, and we expect them to practice grace in their lives, and we are there for our sisters, and we lift them up, and we tell them how amazing they are and then when we think about ourselves we immediately go to what we look like you know we give mm. this compassion and grace to everyone else but we won't extend that to ourselves and i think that's the biggest detriment that we have toward ourselves is we won't we we will treat other people better than we treat ourselves and we will love them unconditionally but love ourselves with conditions mm. and that's a big shift that we need to make you know your gut feeling when you don't feel right about something if something just makes you feel a bit uncomfortable no matter how slightly uncomfortable it is then there's something wrong about that if someone is asking you to do something and you're not comfortable about it you probably have the right to say no but because that person is in a senior position or is senior in the home, you have to do that thing. But if you don't feel right about it, then your right is being infringed upon. It's, it's not so easy for people to actually know what their rights are. It also comes back to knowing that as a human being, you won't get everything right. You know, I know that personally we are, we are our own toughest critics and Sometimes it's hard to overlook or to forgive yourself, basically. You know, you made a mistake, you better at a job, you failed. Forgive yourself. <laughs> if Christ can so willingly forgive us and does it every other day, who are you to hold yourself hostage or as prisoner, you know? Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Free yourself. Part of rock bottom is, is reaching a point 
because whenever anyone starts a business you have high expectations mm-hmm. and of course only success of course right. and for this to not work out however i planned was just extremely humbling mm-hmm. and when you're at rock bottom and i i don't use that word lightly rock mm. bottom it really was bottom of the dregs and the what comes with that is loss of self loss of confidence those i had dealt with a bout of depression had to go to therapy um lost friendships um money you know there's just a lot that goes around with with that work with with that Mm-hmm. And and so it was extremely difficult. We have found for people to go to a therapist and just give up very quickly because oh, I, I don't think it will work out. Um, it's mm-hmm. the preconceived views, the, the judgments. When you go to a therapist, you're not looking for a friend. You're not looking for somebody that you click with. You're not looking for somebody that's like dresses the way you dress and understands your lingo. No, you're looking for somebody that will actually work with you on your presenting issue. So my two things are finding someone that's trained in that field. Because not all therapists are trained in the same field, but also um, I would say sticking with it, stick with it for a little while, and be very true with yourself. Find out: Are you wanting to stop this therapy because you're running away from it, or are you actually ready? My sincere hope is that you choose to do the work on accepting what happened to you. and then loving yourself radically without conditions when you know who you are you have a strong desire to be your authentic self this could mean abandoning what society deems as the correct type of job the correct type of relationships the correct religion the correct way to express yourself i love these next stories as they speak to these women's journeys on embodying their own authenticity our storytellers are adele karet donna lisa mapalo zelipa mulenga and sarah There are people who their definition of success is, you know, the title you have and the job that you have. So I had to really be like, okay, who am I? 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 What is a job? Even with the podcast, what is it? Like it's that thing and Adele is this thing and they just happen to work together, right? that i had to do and i encourage anybody who's thinking of leaving their job especially if you come from like a culture that puts so much pressure around getting a job that's not to say everybody else around you will know how to interact with you i didn't think twice about it one day i just woke up and i thought to myself i'm not going back i just said i'm not going back i was on the phone i was actually on the phone with my friend One of my good friends and I was talking to her and I was explaining to her how I was feeling and then I said to her I was like Do you know what I'm going to hand in my resignation right now and I was like hold on you need to think about what you're doing you know something and I said no I said no I'm going to hand in my resignation and I handed it in the thought just came to me instantly because I think maybe for once I was going through that two week period of being off 
I guess I was I didn't felt as if I had an, op- an option and then I had a moment of enlightenment so every time people are making noise or doing that I'll be there sketching because that was the only way I could be where I could express myself without being judged yeah so um, one of my classmates actually saw what I was doing and she said do you know that you should probably that's what you should study fashion I said what the hell is that I just draw what I feel like. like no no that's exactly what fashion designers do mm. they draw the idea down and then they bring it to life I thought that sounds exciting so I decided to go into an internet cafe look up fashion designing when I just opened I was just like hello this is where we need to be right <laughs> it's like I'm home now home now this is where I need to be after that it was serious fashion sketching um by the time I finished grade 12, and it was a secret because my parents didn't know I sketched that. The only people that knew were the people I shared my bedroom with, my sister and my cousin. And then at that same time, when I was thinking of going to uni, the genocide happened in Rwanda as well. So it got me thinking, and you know when this genocide happened in Rwanda, the, the bodies of the Tutsi were floating into Uganda. So they, they the people who were, you know, because Uganda and Rwanda are neighbors, so when the Tutsis were were killed, they would throw some of their bodies in the river. So it would float into Uganda. And that time we were living by the lake. So there was this horrible stench. And I I didn't understand it at the time, but my when I asked my parents, like, what's going on? Um, yeah. you know, watch the news. Then I said, you know what? I think I will study law, but I'm not going to do commercial law. I'm going to do mm. something like human rights, humanitarian, mm-hmm. where I can make a difference. Um, and, mm. and that was my mindset because initially I was like, okay, I'm going to do like make lots of money, go into commercial mm. law. If you ask me, oh, what do you want to be? I'll be like, oh, I want to be a doctor. You know, I would picture myself, you know, as a surgeon. I would watch Grey's Anatomy, all those things. So I was fully invested in medicine. I had no idea that pharmacy existed until first year. I I had a few uh, mental struggles in the first year. The first year was really tough for me. So I couldn't make the point to get into med school. So I had to pick like the second best, which was pharmacy. And I even tried to maybe appeal to go into medicine, like try to see if I could be pushed to medicine. But then everyone just told me, no, just do pharmacy. So here I was in a program. I had no idea. It's like I had no idea. I didn't even know anything about the program. So I was clueless I didn't have any information on pharmacy so I was just there like wondering like I the whole second year I was like I would have been studying better I would have been studying this I'd have been studying to be a doctor but here I am so I felt out of balance it's like you have so many plans for your life and then everything changes in just a second I think this is a very common African theme that our parents don't rate the arts they don't rate anything creative as something that could sustain you and they always try and do the best that they can for us and they always want us to do better than them and so for me my parents considered my very undeniable talent for writing and being creative which got me into a lot of trouble at times as as a, as a as a great hobby but i needed according to them to get a real job study for something real that will put food on your table. And so I chose what I felt 
was the next best thing. Because anyone who knows me knows I can I can argue quite well. I am not the best girlfriend or wife out there because I can argue and I always win. So I remember having a conversation with my mom one one afternoon and I told her, look, I am me. This is who I am. Accept it. I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna do the thing, I'm gonna get the grades. But you need to allow me to flourish in my own time. And um, I believe that a lot of us girls, especially after I went to uni, not as many women as assertive or as sure, or maybe it's the fear of being, of talking about what you really want or what you deserve. Because they're going to look at you cross-eyed. If you have one of those parents that, you know, like, I'm going to pop you if you say something crazy. <laughs> say something crazy to me, right? So there's always that fear of not overstepping or saying something that may be perceived as rude. Uh, it is very much a journey. It's not something that I think that you wake up one day and you're just like, oh, I'm healed from it and I'm good, you know, because you have to first, it's a very, it's a discovery. We have to bring to the surface the wound so that we can actually address it. And so that includes looking really at internally in yourself and thinking in which ways am I living my life in accordance to some of these, this indoctrination and this conditioning by the wounded patriarchy? In what ways am I living my life in that way, right? And that really has to do with evaluating, okay, am I choosing this religion? Let's just say religion, okay? Am I choosing this religion because I truly believe in my heart that this is the right religion for me? Or am I choosing to go with this religion because everyone around me has told me that this is what I'm supposed to do, you know? And I'm I'm using religion, but religion is not the only thing. This is can come in any way, um, the work that you're doing, right? Finally, as Africans specifically, we have been taught that who we are is not enough, that our systems are primitive and not sophisticated or modern, that there is no wisdom in the way that we have traditionally done things. We have been taught that we cannot trust ourselves to make the right decisions or be the solution to our own problems. As the ladies in the final set of stories will tell you, this is far from the truth. Take a listen to Christabel, Julia, Nokwanda, Monde, and Clara. I was doing research sometime back in Zambia, in rural Zambia. Maybe this must have been in Eastern, maybe Chipata is in Eastern, right? Yeah. And for the longest time, if you ask anyone who's in the financial inclusion space, they will tell you rural populations actually don't understand insurance and don't use insurance. And even I knew that for a fact. So we go in and we're doing research with village savings and loans groups. This is groups of women, typically about maybe 10 to 20 or so. They come around in circles maybe once a week or every two weeks, meet, put in money in their social fund and give each other loans. And as we were trying to understand how the system worked, it hit me that they have two types of funds. They have a loan fund where everyone puts in their contribution and you can actually borrow from that fund. But they have what is called a social fund where everyone chips in, whether it's five quarter 
and then if something happens, God forbid, um, you're able to then contribute towards the member who either maybe has lost a family member or um, has someone sick in the hospital. And then it hit me, but that, but that's what insurance is. You actually pay premium in the hope that if something bad happens, you're covered. It's insurance, but it's not framed in the way a financial expert, for example, might frame it. And they also, when you ask them, do you want insurance? They'll say no. But because we're using different language, because we're not trying to understand how their systems work, we just made assumptions that they're likely financially illiterate, they're not interested in insurance, and we should not even try to design an insurance product. At first, when I was doing the initial video, of course, I didn't think much. I was talking about myself and putting myself out there in, in the shoe of those who are going through the same predicament and everything. And when now this opportunity of doing a match came up, I was like, yeah, I think it's time for us not just doing complaints on social media or just doing videos or just writing down our, uh, our, our events online. I think this is a good opportunity to just speak out so that we see that something will happen at the end of the day. Or maybe the youths out there, as much as they did not come, maybe they can see actually the repercussions of the people they get to elect and give this state. And I don't know if it really sinks in because I really don't think so. The way I'm seeing things happening now, um, and it is a sad affair. You know, when you have a lot to lose, um, yeah, I think they're scared. And I think I also was a fence sitter for quite some time where it was just like, my life is comfortable. Everything is, you know, there's no reason for me to be concerned with something that doesn't concern me. Um, until, you know, you really just start to be awake and alive to the injustices that are actually happening. And like I said, when we started the conversation, I feel like once when you take a stand on something and you see that this thing is not right and you do something about it and you get, you know, positive outcomes and it changes, it's literally like you start seeing issues everywhere. And it's like, okay, this is wrong. This needs to be fixed. Like, like I, I'm so grateful for this country, you know, because there's so much potential. And I think another person was saying how, you know, any any problem that you see in Zambia is a potential business idea. Exactly. So, every, like, if you're coming here with the mindset of, oh, Zambia hasn't got this, Zambia hasn't got that, if you're able to solve that problem, because there are people who see the value of that, and if people are able to benefit from that, you're able to monetize it. So I feel like as soon as you come here, your eyes are just open. Like, you, I've extended my stay, and I've already told you I might extend it, I might not go back. <laughs> because of this potential that I'm seeing I'm like we could do this we could do that we could do this we could do that I can't I can't solve all of our problems however I can identify what I'm capable of solving and looking at how to monetize it and I always say it's so it's so imperative and it's so important for us to make money and not to look at it as a charity mm. because sometimes people look at oh you know in Zambia let's just send money and donate no that doesn't work mm -hmm. it doesn't work to build our economy we need to be able to provide jobs we need to be able to empower people mm -hmm. to come together and collaborate and make more money mm -hmm. that's how people are happy like doesn't buy happiness but it really helps mm. you know <laughs> mm. it helps okay. so like at the end of the day that's what we need to be doing yeah 
So one thing that I honestly, genuinely loved, even when I used to share my recipes prior, before my monetizing it, is I had a thing for pretty food pictures and well-organized plates of food. So I said, I sat and, and I thought, there is nobody in the country that is doing this. This is actually something that I could do. I could literally make a business out of this because we don't have anyone. What would happen is companies would go online, buy stock images, and then slot their product on the side. For me, that was just, I was like, no, this is not cool. You mean to tell me there's nobody in the whole Zambia that could actually cook with your product and take pictures for you? So yeah, that was a light bulb switch. And then, yeah, said, let me do this. Africana woman. You are your ancestors' wildest dreams. You are the conduit of life. You are a co-creator with the divine. You are worthy of your biggest dreams. You are soft. You are vulnerable. You are wise and intuitive. You are a leader. You are the best economist to walk this earth. You, my darling, are a sun-kissed queen. You are literally the definition of home. You are many things. So anything less than extraordinary isn't a mantle that you should carry. I am because you are an Africana woman. Never forget that. Before I go, I have a request of you. I want... 1,000 women to hear this episode. And I need you to help me reach them by sharing it. Send it to your friends, your sisters, your mothers, your workmates, every woman that you know. Give them this gift to remind them how special they are. And now I leave you with the words of Marianne. I'm just being myself and doing what I love doing, which is being creative. So it's something, you know, I didn't learn how to do. It's just the way I am.